0: Well, as I've mentioned a couple of times, and you know by now, this week is the start of our holiday Bible club, 50 odd years and still going strong, but what is it that we're going to do there? Why is it that we're going to bother at all? For the fun? Yeah. For the games? Sure. But what we'll be able to do this week is to present the boys and the girls and the parents and anybody else who who comes in. With a very specific and a very exclusive claim. And the claim is this, that we need to believe and we need to trust in Jesus Christ to be saved from our sins. You see, as we read this passage, faced with a crowd wanting food, and faced with a crowd wanting to see a spectacular miracle show, in John chapter 6 and verse 35, Jesus said these words, I am the bread of life. And as we explore this claim, we'll look where it happened, we'll look at what else Jesus said, we'll look at who he said it to, and we'll try and understand what that means for us today. So where did Jesus make this claim? Well, Eamon showed us a little bit of a a visual aid last week, and that's a bit small, so you can't really see the names. I'll just point something out in a minute but Jesus has spent another day doing miracles the day before if we'd have read from verse one of chapter six we'd have read this account of the feeding of the five thousand where you know the story such a small amount of food five little rolls two little fish is used to feed such a huge crowd the crowd were hungry and Jesus fed them they were amazed and by verse fifteen of chapter six, you can see it for yourself, a group from this crowd were actually wanting to take Jesus and make him their king. So the Bible says he went off into the mountains to hide away, to get some peace and quiet away from them. That's not why he had come. He said, Elsewhere, My kingdom is not of this world. And so in the evening the disciples went down to the Lake Galilee, and they got into the boat, and they sailed out towards Capernaum. So how does your finger... So people think that the incident with the feeding of the 5,000... ...was on the sort of northeast side of the lake... ...and you can see Capernaum just across at the top there. About there. No, I've blocked it out now. You get the, you get the gist. So there is this lake. And in the evening the disciples go down to the, to the shore of the lake and they get into the boat and they're on their own, Jesus isn't with them, and they sail out to the west towards Capernaum. But the storm gets up, and in verses 18 and 19 of chapter six, we see that the storm gets up, and after what is described as about four miles of rowing, the disciples were tired. The disciples were afraid. Anyone ever used a rowing machine down at the gym? I could do about 2,000 metres, two kilometres in about nine minutes. I'm not saying that's good, but it's about what I can do. That's a rowing machine. That's probably quite easy. If you do it on a lake, when the storm's getting up, when it's hard, when it's probably with big heavy oars, probably a lot, lot more difficult to do. And the Bible describes that they went three or four miles across the lake and suddenly they see... Someone walking towards them across the water. How can this be? Who is it? But it's Jesus. And the Bible says he gets into the boat. They welcome him in and mysteriously in verse 21, suddenly, that immediately the boat was at the place where it needed to go to, at the land where they were going. And so we come to verse 22. And now the crowd is looking. Because the crowd on the east side knows that the disciples got into the boat on their own. And went. Only one boat had left the shore. The disciples were in it, but Jesus wasn't. So, where was Jesus? And they went over to Capernaum looking for Jesus. And in verse 25, we read that they found him and they said, Rabbi, when did you come here? And what we're going to do now is see four questions that the crowd ask of Jesus. Four questions. The first one is this. When did you come here? In verse 25. When did you come here? And looking at Jesus' answer is very helpful, isn't it? Because Jesus doesn't directly answer their question. He doesn't say today or yesterday or last night. He tells them why they have come to find him. Jesus says in verse 25, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. He says to them, don't go after the food which perishes, but you want to go after the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. He says to them, it's not just because you saw something, but something actually tangibly happened to you. You were part of a miracle. You were hungry and you had food and it satisfied you. Made no sense, did it, that five small loaves and two small fish could have fed such a great crowd? But it happened, and the crowd wants to know more. Why did Jesus answer questions like this? Because he does it a lot, doesn't he? Why did Jesus do miracles at all? Because he did them a lot. When Jesus did miracles, he didn't just do them for a show, did he? He did them so he could teach something to the people. And when he fed the 5,000 he didn't just do it to sort out their hunger he did it so that they would see who he was and see the power that he had and see the needs that they had and so that they would see where they could find spiritual food which satisfies and not just physical. And Jesus looks at this crowd that's in front of him asking these questions and he says to them all you're interested in is this life. You should be worried about your soul. You should be worried about eternity, but you're not. You're just thinking about this life. So the question to the crowd and the question for us is, what do you think of this Jesus? Do you believe he is who he says he is? What is it that is gripping your heart and my heart today? Why do you want to know more about this Jesus? Why are you even here this morning and week by week is jesus just something who can make our life here better or do we want him because of eternity that is to come and then the crowd ask him another question in verse 28 here's the second question they say well what should we do then that we may work the works of god did they also want to work the same sort of miracles which Jesus had done? Did they think that that was what being a follower of Jesus was all about? That you had to be able to do amazing things and hold a crowd in your hand with a big spectacle? You're doing it, why can't we? Well, there are people who chase after that today, aren't there? There are people who would love to perform miracles so that that's working the works of God they think. That will draw the crowds. But maybe behind this crowd's question was this. What can we do so that God will be pleased with us? What is it that we can do to make God pleased with us? Don't forget their background was, what rules must we keep? What things should we do? What things shouldn't we do? What will make God pleased with us? And Jesus answers that question very simply, doesn't he? He says in verse 29, you must believe in the one that God sent. You must believe in the one that God sent. In other words, you must have faith. Believe and trust in Jesus Christ. And friends, that's the answer today, isn't it? If somebody asks you that question or a question like it, It's not to give them a list of things they must do, but it's to point them to believe and trust in Jesus Christ. The way to know that you can be right with God is simply to believe and trust in his son, Jesus Christ, not to try and earn it. And perhaps as a Christian, you've asked a slightly different question Perhaps you've asked the question sometimes, how can we make sure that we've got thriving and successful ministries and churches or something along those lines? What can we do to ensure that that happens? Some people might say in response, well, we need to have a, a charismatic and a passionate preacher. Some people will tell you that your way of doing church has to have a a cleverly packaged up brand. There's terminology you've got to use. There's there's things you've got to do to make yourself part of the crowd. You've got to call your service the gathering or you've got to change the name of, of your midweek things to life groups or community groups or gospel outreach or whatever it may be. You've got to get rid of anything that looks like it's old and traditional because people won't go for that. You've got to follow the right people on social media. You've got to follow John Piper or James White or Mark Driscoll or Justin Peters or whoever it may be. Ministry is available worldwide now, isn't it? You can go home from here and in a couple of hours you can switch on your computer and you can watch John MacArthur preach or Alistair Begg preach from Parkside. You can watch the whole service live in your front room at 3 o'clock. Great. You couldn't do that, could you? 15, 20 years ago. And we can compare these people and their churches to ours and think, we need to be like them. What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus' answer is helpful for us, isn't it? For thinking about all these things. Verse 29, he says, Believe in him whom God sent. What we must do is only important once we've established what we must believe. If what we believe isn't right, then what we think we've got to do won't be right either, will it? it? May actually be partly right and partly wrong, which is not good either. But Jesus says, Believe on the one whom God sent. You know well the passage in Acts chapter 2, don't you, where faced with a great crowd, Peter was asked a question when the crowd said, what shall we do when they were cut to the heart? And Peter said to them, repent, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be baptized. So the crowd asked that second question and then they asked a third question in verse 30. They said to Jesus, what sign will you do then? Because here's their reaction. When they've asked Jesus, what shall we do? And Jesus says, you need to believe in me. And Jesus says that the way to eternal life is not to do things, but to have faith in God's son. They weren't convinced, were they? The answer they'd expected, the answer they wanted was a list of things, a list of instructions, of things they could do. I wonder if you've ever had that experience in speaking to someone. Are you telling me that all I have to do is to believe in Jesus, all I have to do is to confess my sin and come to him. Is that that's all I have to do? That can't be right. If you, in, in, instead of hearing that reaction in the open air, imagine if you went and you said to, to the crowd, I'm going to be here every Saturday for a year. Come and tell me every Saturday when I'm here all of the good things you've done this week, all of the things that would make God pleased with you every Saturday. And at the end of the year, I'll give you a certificate that says, right, you've done all those things, so now God is pleased with you. If we went and did that, some people would believe it, I'm sure. Some people would come back week after week because it's something they can do. But Jesus says to this crowd, it's not about what you can do. It's about something that's been done already. Or, well, as we can say to people, it's something that's been done for you. It's something that God has done for you. And so the people in front of Jesus, they wanted more proof. People today will want more proof. Some people may say to you, but you know if I could see a famous person converted, oh, that'd be great, wouldn't it? If there was a Liverpool footballer or an Everton footballer or if some great media personality, you know, if somebody like them believed the gospel, then I might think about it. If we could have big name speakers for our HBC prize giving, that would work, wouldn't it? If you were here on Wednesday night, you'd remember how Jesus saw and used the Samaritan woman who he met in John chapter four, the very opposite of a big name, the very opposite of a celebrity held in high esteem. And he used her to reach into an entire community who were changed. Some of the crowd in front of Jesus wanted to see a miracle. They wanted to see a sign. That's hence their question in verse 30. What sign will you perform then that we can see it and believe you? And someone might say to you, well, your church then, if I could come to your church and see a miracle, if I could come to your church and somebody was there who'd been raised from the dead, then I would believe. The Bible says they wouldn't. They wouldn't. Jesus says they wouldn't. The crowd in front of Jesus seems to have forgotten that yesterday Jesus just fed 5,000. Jesus has just walked out on the sea to his disciples. For all we know, some in that crowd may have been the ones fed, but they want another miracle. And they remind Jesus in the next verses, they said, our forefathers were given manna in the desert to eat. That was their miracle, Moses, he provided it. So where's our proof? Where's our proof? And Jesus' reply in verse 32 shoots them down because he says to them, Moses didn't provide that bread. Moses didn't give you that bread. It was my father who gave you that bread. And it's he who gives you the true bread from heaven. And you know what that is? That bread is a person. That bread is a person. It's him who has come down from heaven and given life to the world. And so again, Jesus cleverly answers their question, doesn't he? Instead of answering their request for another miracle, Jesus says, there is bread that you need, not the bread that you ate yesterday or that the crowd ate yesterday, but it's found in a person. And so their fourth question Well, it's not got a question mark after it in verse 34 in the text, but we'll use it as a question. The crowd say, can we have this bread? Can we have it? In verse 34. Where can we get it from? Who can provide it to us? Can you show us where we can get it? Yes, they may remember yesterday's miracle but they still don't see Jesus for who he is. And so now Jesus gives this great declaration from verse 35 to the end of the chapter, starting with these words, I am the bread of life. And as we just look at this briefly, we're gonna see four things about this claim of Jesus from verse 35. The first thing is this, to notice its exclusivity, because in saying what he says, Jesus makes it clear that there are not many ways to eternal life. It's not one of many options. It's not like a maze with ten ways in, of which five will get you to the treasure in the center. Jesus is clear. And in the face of people who thought they had the answer, Jesus makes this exclusive claim I am the bread of life, he says. In answer to the questions that they've asked, what should we do? Where can we get this bread? Do another miracle, Lord? Jesus doesn't produce a menu from which they can make choices, does he? Instead, he stands before them and he says, I am the bread of life. Perhaps you're thinking of a few chapters further on in John's gospel Where in John chapter 14 and verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so Jesus says that he is the only way. And Jesus says that in him only is the truth that we must believe. And in him and only in him is to be found the eternal life which we all need that sort of exclusive claim may not be popular. Might it? People might call you intolerant. People might say, you're wrong. You're deluded. But is it what Jesus says? It is. Where else can you tell people that eternal life is to be found? Isn't that the claim that's been rung out this summer as we've remembered to pray for beach missions and Camps and outreaches and isn't that what will be told this week in Holiday Bible Club? It's like where Jesus talks about being the living water as we saw on Wednesday in John chapter 4 with that woman at the well where he told her that he is the only way. She couldn't get that water anywhere else. She had to come to Christ. She had to come to him. And then all the people saw what Jesus Christ had done in her. So we notice in Jesus' claim, this exclusivity. And then we also notice in this claim, it's sufficiency. Jesus says, he who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. It is sufficient, it is enough. And Jesus says to that crowd in front of them, Whatever you may have been told, whatever you may have been brought up to believe about what you must do and how you are effectively working out, earning your own salvation, forget that because salvation is found, eternal life is found right here in me, he says in verse 35, I am all you need. You don't have to check a rule book of a hundred rules. You don't have to beat yourself up if you missed confession these last few weekends. You don't have to keep a record of witnessing hours on the streets as some religions say you must do. Salvation is about what someone has already done for us. Jesus in his claim says, I am sufficient. In Christ alone, my hope is found He is my light, my strength, and my song. So we notice in Jesus' claim, it's sufficiency. And then we notice God's sovereignty. We notice the sovereignty of God. Thirdly, that God is in control, that God will save, and that God does save. In verse 32, Jesus says, Moses didn't give you that bread from heaven, but my father gave you the true bread from heaven. In verse 35 Jesus says, he who comes to me will never hunger or thirst. In verse 37 Jesus says, all that the father gives me will come to me. In verse 39 Jesus says, this is the will of the father who sent me, that of all he gives me, that of all he has given me, I will lose nothing. So we can be encouraged that God has his people, that God has his people. Who are they? Verse 37, they're the ones that the father has given to the son. So we can notice that God is sovereign, that God is in control, that God will do his work. And why does this give us comfort? I wonder if you've ever had a conversation with someone about the gospel and you've come away feeling frustrated or guilty or annoyed with yourself because at the end they just don't seem convinced did I say something wrong, did I not say enough, oh I should have said this as long as we've been faithful and as long as we've declared his word, as long as we've told people about him and the gospel and the cross of Christ then we've done what we're required to do haven't we that's what we'll do this week as we tell the children and as we have opportunity on Saturday and the other days to speak to parents and friends and relatives. And someone might say to you, you, well, I don't know if I'm one of God's people. I don't know if God would take someone like me. What would you say to them? Look what Jesus says. Just says, come, come to me, come to Christ. And Jesus says in verse 37 that those who come to me won't be turned away. So come to Christ. And in verse 38 he said, this is the will of the Father who sent me. I saw something on uh, social media this week that was linked to Alan Peel, who some of you may know. And it was written by another guy and he was telling this story that some time ago he'd been walking through town and he'd heard Alan preaching with his dad apparently And the man said, I was with friends and I just laughed and I just dismissed it and I probably made fun of him and walked past, not interested, or showing that he wasn't interested at all. But sometime later, this man says, I went back on my own, without my friends, and asked Alan more about what he'd been saying. And Alan had opportunity to share the gospel again with that man. And this man's testimony that was written down says... He was later, or sometime later, converted. As Alan had the opportunity to present Jesus Christ to him, there was a man saved. But first of all, he'd walked right past the preaching of the word, seemingly not interested. The preacher could get discouraged, couldn't he? Seeing people walk by, not interested. But he came back, and he came to Christ, And on Wednesday night, Keith reminded us that God will do his work, that he will do his work in his own time as he pleases, but you know it might not be what or how we would expect. And finally, we notice that there's human responsibility in these verses. And Jesus says to that gathered crowd that they have a responsibility for their souls. You have to come to me, says Jesus, and then you will never hunger. You have to believe in me, says Jesus, and then you will never thirst. Only if they do, will they gain this eternal life of which they've been asking. As the crowd stood in front of Jesus, he said, some of you have seen me. Some of you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. Verse 36. You've seen my miracles, and for some of you, It's all about yourself. You were hungry and I fed you and you just want me to do it again. You've not understood that you have to put your faith and trust in me, says Jesus. So we have a responsibility. We're in church today. Thousands and thousands of people up and down the country and across the world will be in church today where they will hear the gospel Through the hymns, through the readings, through the preacher, we trust. The question is, what will we do with this gospel? What will we do with this Jesus? And as a church, what should we do with this gospel? A man called Jerry Packer wrote a famous book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. And in it is this quote... He says, Christ's command to evangelize means that we should be devoting all of our ingenuity and all of our endeavors and all of our resources to convey the gospel of Christ to as many people as possible. It's a good quote, isn't it? Christ's command to evangelize means we should devote all of our ingenuity and all of our endeavors and all of our resources to convey the gospel of Jesus Christ to as many people as possible. So we have a responsibility to share this Jesus with people. And surely that's what this coming week will be about. So will you be here? And if you can't be here, will you pray for it? Will you pray for the leaders and the speakers and the children and the families? And verse 40 gives us this great promise, doesn't it? That everyone who sees the Son, everyone who believes in him, will have everlasting life. And Jesus says, and I will raise them up. I will raise them up at the last day. Because this life is not all there is. There is a life to come. And that's what the crowd, many of them didn't see. They were just focused on this earthly life. They just wanted what they could get out of this life. But Jesus says there is a life to come and there is a day coming When you must give account of yourself before God. This is the claim of Jesus. Can we trust his word? We can, can't we? If Jesus is true, and if Jesus is to be believed, then what must we do? If we believe in him, then Jesus says we will have everlasting life. And Jesus says, I am the bread of life. So come, come and taste this living bread. Turn to Jesus Christ. Trust him for the forgiveness of your sins. Ask for the power of the Holy Spirit to be with you in your daily walk with him. What did that crowd want that day? Didn't they just want a better earthly life? Yet Jesus stands in front of them and tells them, how they can have and what they must do to have eternal life, to believe, to come, and to trust in him. So will you come and taste this living bread?